beautiful, the intelligent Professor <laughs> Roger wearing a shirt from the TBC merch store. And I don't know how many times I have to tell this to everybody. Roger's the author of my favorite book, The Metamorphosis of Prime Intellect, which is available on Lulu. Lulu? Hulu? Not Hulu. Hulu's TV. Lulu. Lulu. L-U-L-U. Until I see Metamorphosis of Prime Intellect topping the charts, I hold each and every one of my audience members accountable, and you will be judged harshly upon the Day of Reckoning when when we hired Dale to start, you know, we're going to start, it's going to be the opposite of book burning. We're going to start going to houses and say, do you have this book? It's like, like communist China. <laughs> like you had to have a picture of Mao. We're going to go in and we, that is prime intellect. I'm like, I just had it. I was letting my neighbor borrow it and up against the wall. <laughs> um, and speaking of, of cold war, communist China, cold war tomorrow, having on uh, a Marine who's 87 years old, who stood guard at the Castle Bravo test in 1952, the Ooh. largest thermonuclear weapon ever detonated by the United States. They set it all up, and then they put some Marines and, there, and they say, you guys look at basically. And, and it overran. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was supposed to be seven it was expected to, It was expected to deliver 10 megatons, and it was like over 14. Oh, no, they and almost sank a lot of the observation ships. Oh, they thought, no, no, they were planning <laughs> on it being seven and it was 15. <laughs> so, oh, okay. Yeah. I stand corrected. Oh, yes, was, I knew that. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was bad. And he was. Because it turns out lithium seven does actually fall apart when you start hitting it with neutrons. <laughs> Nobody no, knew that. Noted. Noted. <laughs> noted. Right. When the four mile when the four mile wide fireball was shooting a mushroom cloud breaking a hundred thousand feet within ninety seconds, they were like, "All right, you know, you learn something new every day." <laughs> it's uh right, and uh, just, a little, just a little error in the calculation. Sometimes you learn that you know this person acted in this movie, and sometimes you learn that lithium deuteride does indeed burn. So you know, it's you learn something new every day. This well, one, it, well it, you, you do know the the whole story behind that. Was that it's uh, it was lithium six deuteride was the intended yeah. uh, target for the neutrons to turn it into trini- tritium and and do the fusion, but uh, it wasn't completely refined. They had about thirty percent lithium seven in there along with the lithium six, and they thought that that would be inert that uh, that it wouldn't do anything. And it turned out there was a side reaction. <laughs> where lithium seven absorbs a neutron and irradiates, it turns into lithium six, and then boom, it contributes to the reaction too. Sometimes, so. <laughs> sometimes you put too much salt in the recipe. Sometimes you just so put it was too like, much. oh yeah, that's a little more cayenne than we expected. It's a little more. <laughs> that one had a little more pop, right? It's uh, but yeah. yeah. It... Uh, <laughs> oh, I don't know if you noticed too, but I made a little enhancement here. I have this funny looking thing on the boom of my mic. Oh, you got a pop uh, filter. Yes, because I noticed uh, my uh, original boom mic, uh, the one that disintegrated because it was 15 years old, came with a foam yeah. puff filter. And I had noticed, I think the people who designed this intended that I would kind of like talk past it, you know, and sure. that wasn't working well because we weren't getting good volume. So when I positioned it so that I was speaking at it like this, I was getting a lot of huffing and puffing yeah, yeah. and blow your house down sounds and all. So I was like, you know, it's just like, uh, I think I need to do something about that. And uh, I think I think this is an improvement. It is. Uh, no, I can hear it. It is it. Okay. Is it good. Just, yeah. Is it an illusion or is it 
is it cuboidal? Yes, it's cube. It's it's cube. It's like cut it out of a piece of foam packing no, awesome. material. No, it's awesome. It's awesome. No, I was I, that that makes it that much fucking. I wasn't sure if it's just the angles on it. No, I mean shit. I have yeah. this one, but I mean I could probably just cut up one of these and stick it on. It's right. Yeah. Now this was a piece of uh, this was actually a piece of foam packing material. In fact, it's anti electrostatic for semiconductors because it was made for packing semiconductors. It was just a piece of foam that I had lying around, and I snipped it and. I, you know. I made sure to get the fireproof <laughs> sound paneling. I think I told you that. I was oh like, yeah. I was like, this is a, <laughs> this is a, this is a coffin, and uh, but it, I got the fireproofing. I did not get the fireproof moving blankets, which is why those are off to the corner. But that's also why. That's why my co-host is a fire extinguisher. And you know what? It probably shouldn't be down there. It should probably be up here, ready to be grabbed, <laughs> which is what I will do. Um, but this guy, uh, his name's John R. Halderman. I was watching, uh, cause I interviewed Richard Rhodes Friday, right? Who's the definitive author on making of the atomic bomb. Wait, you, you interviewed Richard I interviewed Rhodes? Richard M. Rhodes. Holy shit. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck, <laughs> fuck with it. It's cool. Yeah, I know. Right. I know, dude. It's, it's, I, I was, so, we did his book about the Einsatz group and then, uh, towards the end, we got him to do a couple talked about the atomic bomb a little bit. And hearing, because he narrates Dark Sun, the making of the hydrogen bomb. Yeah. So hearing him start to talk about it was just like, man, it was like fucking seeing the Beatles live. I was just like, I'm At hearing- this point, he must be one of the most knowledgeable people on the planet about how it all went down. Because 100%. everyone else has died. 100%. I was watching a lecture from MIT last night about the making of the atomic bomb. Because if I'm not on enough NSA watch lists already. <laughs> but the guy starts it with, right? And the guy starts it with, and of course, we all know- the definitive uh, literature on this is The Making of the Atomic Bomb by Richard Rhodes. It's the most detailed book about it. I had him on. Pulitzer Prize, National Book Award. I had him on Friday. And, uh, Damn. yeah, dude, it was, I, it was, I was like a little kid. Um, but so I, after, I would say, yeah, I, I am totally looking for that dude, episode of your job. Fucking, yeah, it's, uh, what's, so today's 599. So that was 598. Yeah. So it's the most recent one. And, um, but, so, so I directly follow Richard Rhodes. Yeah, yeah, you're fucking better. You better be swinging for the fences, man. You got big shoes to fill. Oh, I do have a good story for you. Well, let me let me segue real quick. So after interviewing him, I was immediately thrown right back into just like hydrogen bomb obsession. So that's all I did Friday was I just fucking instead of playing video games, I had, I had a couple beers and was just watching old Castle Bravo videos and was like, I I, I can recite all of them, but I had found one that had something in it that I hadn't heard before. And I realized, I was like, oh, this is must be like an unedited, unedited version. And it's like, you know, like, I don't know the proper military names, Lieutenant Corporal Marine, uh, John R. Hall or John H. Halderman, you know, was 20 years old when he was, when he stood guard for the, cause that's what they had to do, right? Even the first A-bomb, right? They set it all up and then they have people go stand guard in the final hours because, we can't have Make it. Make sure no one messes it up. Yeah. Well, because if someone goes up there and they're wearing a white coat, chances are they're a saboteur. And so they always have orders to shoot to kill. And so it's yeah. Halderman and a couple other Marines just sitting next to the shot cab of Castle Bravo out in the middle of the <laughs> Pacific. And they're like, the orders, they had a list of names and it was like all four of them. And then maybe like the head general, anyone else shoot to kill. Because if you're yeah. on a tiny little island in the Pacific that's barricaded by... U.S. Navy ships, you didn't just and, and someone 
You yeah. didn't just walk. You just didn't. You didn't just take a, a wrong turn and end up in someone's driveway. You're in the middle of the Pacific. It's a sabotage. Hey, you missed that turn in Albuquerque. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you ended up eight thousand miles from LA in the middle of the. No, they had orders: shoot to kill. And so he's like, "So we're just sitting there all night, just." And he goes, "And we're just, you know, putting our feet up on it." And he goes, "And I signed it. I I signed it with a marker." And uh, so it was just on a whim. I was like, "What's this guy's name?" And I went, and this is just some like PBS clip from two thousand. And I was like, oh, well, you know, I was like, you know, pretty old guy. And uh, and I went in, and I just started kind of searching the name and found some old website that looks like it hasn't been updated since like the 2000s and just found an email. And I was like, fuck it, I'll try. Emailed it. <laughs> guy got back to me in a couple hours. It was like, I am that John Haldeman. Put me in touch with the son. Talked to his son today. The son's going to set up the Zoom meeting tomorrow night. He is coming on here and he's going to tell me about the Castle Bravo sitting guard feet up on the shot cab just sitting there with an automatic <laughs> so you got you you got richard rhodes then me then the guy who was sitting on the beach next to the castle bravo shot <laughs> and i'm still and i'm and i'm at 400 subscribers on rumble why do i even try it's but you know what fuck it but with that Professor well, Roger. it's in the record. Yeah, so, Professor Rogers, uh, take it away. All right, so uh, our uh, plan was to talk about a local media personality that you had never heard of. But before I can talk about him, as you know, I like to lay some groundwork. So I want to talk a little bit about hurricanes and what we did and didn't know about them uh, until recently. Uh, the first European to ever report a hurricane was some guy named Christopher Columbus on his second expedition to the new world in 1495, he encountered a storm South of Cuba and he wrote about it. Nothing but the service of God and the extension of the monarchy would induce me to induce to to risk such danger again. All right. But he did survive it. He recorded it. Now, there was a bit of a kerfuffle about this report of Columbus's, uh, particularly in the 20th century when we started to learn more about these storms, because that was in January of 1495. And uh, in the beginning of the 20th century, we started to understand that there is a hurricane season, that these things have patterns and all. And you don't have hurricanes in January. This was like the new knowledge. And so a lot of people discounted this report from 1495 and said, well, Chris was probably, you know, a little intoxicated or something, might have had a little too much rum. Uh, But then in 1955, uh, there was a storm that arose in the Caribbean, and there were a few reports, and uh, they reported back to the mainland. Yeah, there's a storm in the Caribbean, but it can't be a hurricane because it's January. Hurricanes don't happen in January. And then it happened to go over one of the islands that had a reporting station on it, and they sent back a report that said, oh my, no, this is a hurricane. This is very definitely a hurricane. Don't fuck around with it. This is a hurricane. Get out of its Get way. Cover. All right. And at that point, they started to realize that, okay, maybe uh, Mr. Columbus was not uh, entirely intoxicated in 1495, and he really did run into a hurricane in January. But uh, being uh, 
lucky that way, I suppose, he ran into another one in 1502 on his fourth expedition. And this is a much funnier story. By this time, there were Spaniards all over the fucking New World. They were pillaging the place, trashing the mainland, bringing back gold and slaves and shit. And Columbus was here, and uh, he had sailed back to Hispaniola to post some letters and correspondence back to, back home before continuing his voyage. Uh, but he noticed the signs in the sky that the natives had taught him that meant you are about to have a very bad weather day. Okay, and he went to the governor of Hispaniola and asked, uh, can I use your harbor for uh, for my ships? And he was told no. Uh, as much as people don't like Christopher Columbus today, people don't realize, people didn't like Christopher Columbus even when he was alive. He was a bit of an asshole and it rubbed off. He was sent back to the New World, uh, from the New World, from his third voyage in chains. And he had to like rehabilitate himself with the royals and schmooze, you know, get another commission and all. So no one really had much of a use for him. He had a share of the loot from the whole pillaging of the New World thing. Uh, no one liked that, but you know, it was you know. But, but anyway, they didn't have much use for him. So anyway, so he sent his ships around to the west side of the island, thinking to at least try to you know, protect them that way. Meanwhile, he realized that the reason they didn't want him in the harbor was that they were assembling a treasure armada to bring the loot back to Spain. And one of the ships in that armada actually had Chris's share of the loot. But they didn't want him messing with it because it was, you know, all of the shit, right? Okay, so he, he went back to the governor and said, look, uh, I've seen this before. I've been through one of these things. You do not want to have an encounter with one of these storms. You should probably wait for this storm to hit and pass you before you set sail. This is widely regarded as, as the very first hurricane warning that was ever issued. And typical of humans, they ignored it. <laughs> so they set sail anyway. They got hit by the hurricane. Of their 30 ships... 25 were sunk. Four were damaged so badly that they had to limp back to Hispaniola. And the one that managed to make its way back to Spain happens to be the one carrying Christopher Columbus's share of the loot. Jesus. <laughs> now, now, that is one of the kind of woo-seeming yeah. things that, Episode that two does o- seem to Episode 201. Uh, when, when you, you, uh, in these accounts of, uh, weather systems and, and these powerful storms and all, you, you see accounts like this of like, well, now the thing that you have to, you know, if you ask yourself who gets killed by hurricanes, for the most part, it's people who don't respect the fact that there are hurricanes. They're living in places that are vulnerable or they're sailing in places that are vulnerable or someone gives you a warning and you ignore it. Okay, Uh, all you can do about a hurricane is respect the fuck out of it and get out of its way. It is one of the most powerful natural phenomena known to man. 
and there is nothing we can do about it. Every once in a while, you hear some guy uh, go, well, we just nuke the hurricane. Well, because the hurricane wouldn't even fucking notice, except that you would then make the hurricane radioactive. radioactive. Yeah. <laughs> so so it would be like one of those things where, the you know, you, you aim at the villain in the comic book, and whatever you do to it just makes it more dangerous you and just, more powerful. <laughs> you just made it stronger. Yeah, it's now it's, yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. So uh, anyway, uh, that set the stage really for the next few hundred years. Uh, what happened was you would go to sea and there was a non-trivial chance that you would never reach land again. And no one knew exactly why or how or whether there was a pattern to this. There didn't, you know, As far as anyone knew, there wasn't really a pattern to it. Every once in a while, a ship would go out and it just wouldn't come back. Uh, and this is more understandable if you've ever seen a ship of that era up close. Uh, what we call ships today didn't exist in the 15th century. You know, uh, the HMS Surprise, which is the ship that uh, was in uh, Master, the, the movie uh, Master and Commander, okay, uh, is actually uh, docked in San Diego at the Maritime Museum there. And you can tour it. And I've done that. Uh, so you can actually board the ship. It's oh, wow. a, an authentic, it's a replica, but it's an authentic replica of a 17th century warship uh, with the cannons and everything. And it is fucking dinky. Yeah. It is tiny. It's 200 feet long, which sounds like a lot until you are out on the, the ocean. Of the ocean, yeah. I mean, there are people who aren't even billionaires who have lot who have yachts bigger than this thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, and uh, and this was the thing, you know, for hundreds of years, uh, you know. And then you had also people on the land. You know, it's like you live near the the coast because that's where the money is to be made, fishing, shrimping, stuff like that. But it wasn't unusual that you would hear, you know, there there would be a, a tale of okay. Everyone's going about their business as usual. It's a normal day until two in the afternoon when it starts to cloud up and it gets worse and worse and worse. And by 10 p.m., everyone's tying themselves to trees and praying that they don't drown. That's, you know, uh, and then by the next morning, it's gone. This is just what happens. Okay. These, these, these things happen. No one knows why. The next advance in understanding anything about these things was in 1743 by Benjamin Franklin. And he was planning to watch an eclipse that had been predicted. And he couldn't because the weather turned foul. It turned foul very quickly. And then on this typical pattern of ocean storms, cleared up within a matter of hours afterward. And being Benjamin Franklin, he got curious, so he sent out inquiries. Now, you got to remember, in 1743, sending out an inquiry meant handwriting it with a quill pen, handing it to a guy on horseback who would take it to the person it's intended to, who would then have to write a response with a quill pen, hand it to the guy on horseback who would then bring it back to you eventually. Uh, that, Nonetheless, uh, Franklin did figure out that the storm had tracked up the coast 
that it had progressed up the eastern seaboard, which meant that the storm was compact and mobile, that it was moving. And this was a thing no one had known before that. Okay. So, you know, this is, this is how little we knew about these storms. But Franklin figured out that, no, these things must be fairly compact and they move. And this particular one moved up the east coast of the United States. But, well, it wasn't the United States at the time, but it would become the United States. Um, so that was, you know, people started to have some idea that these things weren't just like random demonic things. So what, that were what, fun- what year did you say this was happening? 1743. Okay. All right. So, yeah. So, yeah, 30, uh, yeah, 30 years before. I, 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 yeah, 1776 was the Declaration of Independence. Yeah, so, so okay. All right. So, they were, we were still British colonies then. Yeah. Uh, now, in the next really major advance in our understanding, in 1821, a, an American meteorologist named William C. Renfield figured out that these storms were circular and that they had a counterclockwise rotation. And he figured that out by examining the pattern of trees that were felled by one of these storms that came inland. And that established that uh, what Ben Franklin saw was not like the tongue of some larger thing tracking up the coast. No, these, these storms are compact. They're, they're round, they have a circulation, they're, they're organized. There, there is a logic. There is something to them other than just randomly killing you when you decide to take an ocean voyage. But they still didn't understand very much more about it than that. Uh, by the mid-19th century, they were starting to think more along the lines of, is there a way to figure out how these things form, where they form, how they move. Can we predict them so we can get out of their way? Um, And the telegraph would have been a great tool for this, except at the time, telegraph lines had to be run over land, and you couldn't really get a telegraph line to a ship. But uh, just after 1850, they started running transoceanic telegraph cables. And by the latter half of the 19th century, they had transoceanic, you know, well, they had undersea telegraph cables uh, to a lot of the islands in the Caribbean. And that turned out to be very useful because islands don't move. So you can run a transoceanic telegraph cable to them. And uh, a lot of the islands in the Caribbean happened to be pretty well located to give warning to the mainland that something bad is about to happen. So in 1870, the first hurricane warning service was started. It was originally based in Cuba. It would move a couple of times. But uh, they were depending on these undersea telegraph cables to islands. And the uh, idea was that they could warn the mainland, in particular, that a storm was coming. Now, they still didn't have a very good idea what direction it was going or uh, anything else. They could tell that if it was, if it was, seemed to be very powerful or, yeah, it's, it's a storm, but you know, you got to watch what it might do. Uh, data from boats was still important to researchers, but it still only came in after the fact. 
you know, uh, it was still uh, throughout the 19th century, whatever data was collected by boats, and most boats did, uh, you know, when I say boats, what I mean is ships uh, that had a complement of uh, a crew, they would take daily weather readings and record it in the ship's log, but they had no way to get this information to, to the shore until the boat reached shore. Now, there were people who were looking at this data, and there was more and more of because there were more and more ships. Maritime traffic was only increasing all through these centuries. We're now over 300 years since Christopher Columbus's uh, encounter with a hurricane, and very little more was known than he had known when he got hit off the coast of Cuba. So uh, then radio was invented. And that did change everything because now all of these boats became weather information service providers in real time. Like man. And even the, yeah. And well, they didn't even have, yes, like at first it was really more that just all of this ocean traffic that existed, you know, they, uh, buoys would be a little later because spark gap transmitters were very labor intensive to operate, but, any ship of a certain tonnage and value, as soon as it was practical, was equipped with radio. Eyes and ears. Because so these, these are all kind of like Batman, right? Where he turns every phone into a sonar. Right. And, okay. and that's what happened in the Atlantic Basin, is, is that all of a sudden, within a space of a few years, we were getting data in real time yeah. from all these ships. So they were all sending daily weather reports. And then if one of them hit a storm, they would send an immediate report. We have hit a storm. We are, you know, we are, you know, this is what's happening. And this was now reaching the mainland in real time, which had never happened before. And so the prediction services were using this data. Uh, this, this advanced the whole concept of how these oceanic storms were formed, how they moved, where you would find them. Uh, just uh, an enormous amount in a couple of decades. Now, the Great War, World War I, didn't really have much of an effect on this, even though there was uh, some maritime battles there. Uh, the aircraft in World War I were not the sort of thing you would fly into a hurricane. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, or even very, or even very far offshore. I was about to say uh, you don't really fly them if there's like a slight wind. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and and as as far as the way the ships responded to it, it's more that they, uh, the war powers of the day treated the whole threat pretty much the same way that the you know commercial maritime people did it was uh didn't really change the picture that much that there was this big war going on uh that however was not the case for world war ii uh by world war ii you had planes that could actually fly into a tropical system and expect to fly out of it without crashing uh, and you had a lot of interest because we were putting a lot of hardware into all the world's oceans. Uh, and we had enough trouble with other people shooting at it without having hurricanes taking their toll too. So uh, Admiral Nimitz, he of the nuclear powered aircraft carrier named after him, uh, was one of the people who spearheaded 
this research into tropical weather and trying to understand these storms, where they come from, how they develop, and, and uh, all this, you know, basically very little was known about them other than the fact that they existed and that they would kill you. Well, in 1943, an airplane took off from the Philippines for the first time in history, deliberately flew into a tropical system to study it. This turned out to be unbelievably useful because the study plane could fly a pattern. It could go through back and forth through the storm at different altitudes. It could find, it could determine the extent of the storm, find its center, uh, do all kinds of studies about air pressure and stuff at different points. Uh, and they were able to learn far more about these storms than anyone had ever known. And uh, in that first airplane that ever flew into a tropical cyclone, one of the people in the cabin of that plane was a 25-year-old meteorologist named Nash Roberts. Uh-oh. The, the, the crux of our story. Who is the subject of today's and- edutainment. <laughs> and, and on that note, I really have to use the restroom. <laughs> I barely made it forty-five minutes. I'm this is this is a bad one. We've gotten better at this. Roger, tell them where to get Metamorphosis Prime and Life. Okay, uh, yeah. If you want a copy of my book, the Metamorphosis of Prime and Life, on paper, uh, so that you can hold it in your hand and refold the pages. Uh, you can get it from Amazon. Most people do. But I would encourage you to go to lulu.com instead, L-U-L-U, uh, because they are the publisher of Origin. And the price will be the same. Uh, I, I can't say that, you know, because of the contracts that had to be signed that were necessary for people uh, who publish on other platforms to have their books distributed uh, on platforms like Lulu and uh, other booksellers. But if you buy it from Lulu, I get their share of the money. So if you buy it from Amazon, I get a buck fifty in royalties. If you buy it from Lulu, I get more like about six dollars. So it's uh, if you got a couple of extra moments, it would be a nice gesture. Fuck yeah. So Nash. So. Now we have met Nash Roberts at the time. He was born in 1918, and he was instrumental in Admiral Nimitz's uh, study of tropical weather in World War II. After the war, he came home to New Orleans, and for a few years, he ran a private weather prediction service for industrial interests, which at the time, of course, you know, you already had oil exploration in the sure. Gulf of Mexico, so you had customers for it. But in 1951, he went to work for WDSU-TV. He became the first full-time weathercaster in the southern United States. Uh, and WDSU itself was the first TV station in the southern United States. They went on air in 1948. Now, you might recall, I was telling you in one of our previous podcasts that the late 40s, early 50s were for television what the 20s had been for radio. This is a period where someone would just start a station almost as uh, an avocation, as a a lark, and 
a couple of stores would stock receivers because now there is a station that you can receive with the television receiver. And those people, you know, those are the chart. Those are the kind of people who shop at the sharper image, right? You know, it's like I've got a television set. Yeah, yeah. Invite all the neighbors over, have barbecue, watch the TV, watch the motion and, picture. Yeah, and so some of those people would go out and get their own TV sets, and eventually there'd be enough people with receivers that someone else would start a station. The other two uh, main network stations uh, didn't come along till the mid fifties. So Nash had already been uh, a weathercaster, full-time weathercaster, for several years before there was another television station in New Orleans. Now, Nash was not what you would consider like a media personality. He was a scientist. And he uh, projected uh, a very calm, uh, scholarly demeanor. On it's like uh, he he didn't talk down to his audience. He knew better than that, but uh, he didn't get panicked. He he his his way of approaching it was, uh, this is what I think will happen. This is why, and he would have a picture. Okay, he was also very innovative in that day. He was one of the first weathercasters in the country to to use radar in his telecasts. Uh, he would say, this is the data. And if he didn't know something, he wasn't afraid to say that. He would say, you know, it's like, this is what I think will happen, but we're not certain. These are the possibilities. This is, you know, he was very clear about stuff like that. And uh, in the day, people liked that. I mean, you're talking, his, a lot of his audience are people who just come back from World War II. You know, they were part of, you know, the, the, the parents of the baby boom. Okay. And, uh, there were other people came in, uh, but Nash really started to establish his reputation in 1957 because he predicted the landfall of Hurricane Audrey. And it's not that he was right and the other forecasters were wrong. It's that he actually made a prediction. He said, he, I think Audrey is going to fall in western Louisiana around Cameron Parish. It's going to be a very powerful storm. If you have interests in the area or you live there, you should probably consider battening everything down and going in. It's going to be dangerous. No one else had a fucking clue where it was going. Okay, because you got to remember at the time, there were no satellites. Yeah. What they had to work with was point data sources. Okay, you had a ship or a buoy or something, and it would say, okay, at this point in time, this was the wind direction. This was the speed and the temperature and the barometric pressure. That was it. Yeah. So you're, so you're Nash Roberts in 1957 or any other weathercaster. You're looking at these point data sources over time. And the challenge is to solve for, you know, the storm is round. You know, it has a counterclockwise rotation. You don't necessarily know how large it is or how strong it is, but you're trying to piece together these point data sources that you have to make a picture of something that's consistent with a storm that is doing something believable, like gradually growing, maybe getting bigger because it's over warm water. This is what these storms seem to do. That By this time, they had figured out that they were heat engines. Uh, and Nash had been working with this kind of data longer than just about anybody else, you know, from that early 
uh, stuff in the Philippines for Davril Nimitz. I was going to say, and at that time, right, 50s, at the time, the only, you know, von Neumann and the ENIAC and the Maniac, that was only being used for hydrogen bomb uh, generations of uh, fusion. They weren't using it for hurricanes. Yeah. Well, <laughs> actually, it was part of von Neumann's dream that oh. computers would perfect weather forecasts. Oh, well, fuck me. All right. That was that was actually very explicitly part of his uh, goal to you know in, in in building computers was he thought that it would perfect the ability to to, uh, to forecast the weather. Right. Uh, so, but it wasn't there yet. But Nash didn't have fact, access to it. No, That's and and, and actually, and actually, you found out it was never going to work. But that comes late. Right. Uh, so, uh, but Nash had it in his head. Okay, and he came up with a solution, and the solution told him, "Okay, this is consistent with all of these data points, and what it says is this is a powerful storm that is going to hit Cameron Parish in Louisiana." And he told everyone. And one of the things uh, that was said uh, after he passed was that Nash, yeah, one of one of his colleagues said Nash was not afraid to be wrong. If, if he thought a thing would happen, he would say, this is what I think will happen. Uh, I will tell you, it's not certain. All right, there are other possibilities, but if I was you, this is what I would do. That was kind of his demeanor. And Audrey hit Cameron Parish exactly where he said, and everyone fucking sat up and took notice because no one had done this before. Now, other TV stations popped up. They hired their own meteorologists. In those days, uh, all of the TV meteorologists were actually professionals who had studied uh, forecasting. But none of them had – there probably weren't more than a dozen people in the entire world who had Nash Roberts' experience, uh, particularly with hurricanes and cyclones. So in 1965 – uh, well, in the early 60s, satellites started to appear. The first weather satellite was Tyros-1, television infrared observing satellite, T-I-R-O-S. And it only operated for about 70 days. But it was so successful that they started launching a bunch of these things. And it wasn't geosynchronous. They didn't have that at the time. That you know, it was beyond that technology of the day. So they had to have a fleet of satellites to get full coverage. They didn't have full daily coverage of the Atlantic Basin until around 1965. Uh, so you still could have a storm that was out there in the dark between the strips that these satellites were imaging, and you wouldn't know that it was there. Uh, but by 1965, you, you pretty much did. Uh, but on the other hand, the satellite didn't tell you all of the fine data that the point source data did. And the kids who were coming up, as it were, in the meteorological community weren't learning the stuff that Nash knew. They had satellites now. You just, you know, wait till the picture comes in. You got a picture of the fucking storm. There it is. Yeah. It's got an eye. Okay. Yeah. You know, uh, so you don't learn this intimate understanding of how the storm is put together and how it interacts with the environment, with the land and everything. Nash had this in his bones. This uh, oh, was okay. Wait, so hold on. So you're 
Okay, so you're saying that that had a damaging effect. It's people's ability to just get it at a at a glance was oh, so it's the it's the trust fund kid who doesn't respect like, yeah. the value of money. How many people know their multiplication tables to twelve times twelve nowadays? When you got calculators? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So he, and, and then he had this sort of he had this sort of like cross. He had to do it the hard way when only the hard way was possible. So he had he had the high tech, but he also okay. All right. So when the high tech came along, he still had the old school yeah. knowledge too. Okay. And that proved to be a big strength uh, because the, the kids coming up after him weren't going to bother internalizing that stuff that, you know, uh, very few people ever did after him. Uh, and those who did uh, sometimes came to regret it. Uh, Jeff Masters, who founded weatherunderground.com, uh, got into the internet weather biz because he was in the hurricane hunters and almost got killed in a hurricane hunter flight. <laughs> and it traumatized him. He was in therapy for years. Uh, after almost dying in uh, a hurricane hunter flight, that barely made it back uh, to the base. So, yeah, the, 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 the new kids on, uh, coming along aren't going to have this level of skill and he put it to use. He had the new tools, but he also had the old tools that gave him a sharpening ability that other people didn't seem to have. In 1965, he predicted that hurricane Betsy was going to nail New Orleans. And he told everybody, get the fuck out. It was, you know, this is, it's going to be a bad, powerful storm. It's going to be a direct hit on a major metropolitan area uh, the storm defenses are not going to be reliable against a storm of this size. And he was right about everything. And to this day, there are people who will talk to you about Hurricane Betsy and how terrible it was. That was the terrible storm until Katrina came along. Uh, and he's widely credited with uh, saving a lot of lives because he gave that warning. Uh, now, the thing is at the time, it still wasn't, uh, he, he, he wasn't uh, like regarded the way he would come to be. But this was one of the things. It's like all of the people, whether they were trapped by Betsy or whether they were watching it on TV from the hotel in Chicago, were like, oh my God, he got it exactly right. And after that, there was a large population of New Orleans people who didn't want to hear anybody else's fucking forecast for a hurricane. Uh, so, I mean, and I, this is what I read. Now, when Betsy hit, uh, my parents were not in New Orleans. This was during the two years that my dad had to go to California to serve his stint in the Navy, which was a condition for his fellowship to get a PhD in physics. Uh, in fact, yeah, my dad was teaching Hyman Rickover's future captain's physics because he wanted everyone to have a physics degree. So that was my dad did for two years oh, as yeah. he taught physics at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. And uh, from my, now I was six months old when, they brought me to California in two and a half when I came back. And I don't remember any of it because I was a baby. Uh, then 
uh, Camille hit in 1969, and Nash predicted it correctly too. Uh, Camille, I do remember very vaguely the newscasts of Camille, but I remember much more starkly later in life driving up the Gulf Coast and the scars that Camille left on the Gulf Coast, many of which were not removed for decades. Uh, Camille was one of the most powerful hurricanes that ever hit land. Uh, the winds were 200 miles an hour sustained. And we know that they were at least that strong because that was the point at which the anemometer in Gulfport broke. So he's a good sign. So, yeah. Um, and Nash warned everybody. He said, this is going to seriously ruin your day. This is, this is a very bad storm. It's going to hit Gulfport and it's going to wipe out. Now, Camille wasn't a very big storm. It was very compact. So the area of the coastline that got that horrible wind and terrible storm surge was only about 20 or 30 miles. But if you were in that area, you had a very bad day. It was like, basically you died. There, there was, there was, you know, there was no way to survive what Camille did to the Gulf Coast in that region. Um, and, uh, you know, 20 years later, there were still foundations that didn't have houses on them. You know, but Nash had predicted it. And after that, he, he was God. He, he, there were people who literally called him the weather God. No one understood these storms the way Nash Roberts did. And there are people, they favored the other TV stations or their newscasters or even their weathermen in normal times. But when there was a storm in the Gulf of Mexico, everyone would go to the station where Nash was because you've got to find out what Nash thinks. Yeah. That was like, he was a god. And, you know, this was when I was growing up. This was like, yes, you you find out what Nash thinks. Period. That's his, no, no one, what, no. And some of the, some of the other way, it's, it, in, the, in those days, the weathercasters tended to be professionals. So some of them were actually a little bit resentful that Nash got this kind of attention because, they were trying to, sure. you know, it's like they, they, they had degrees and, you know, they had, they had studied this and you know, it's like, they weren't like on air personalities purely. Um, but in the seventies, you saw this phenomenon starting where the weather faster kind of became the class clown of the newsroom. Uh, Willard Scott started this today show, you know, calling out the birthdays of the centenarians and talking about festivals and stuff, you know, because, well, you know, we're going to have jazz fest or the French quarter festival or something. Well, that's going to be outside. So we'll have the weather caster tell you what kind of day you're going to have there. Uh, and as things progressed toward the eighties and nineties, that really became the standard. Uh, because all the weather casters were mostly doing was just parroting what the national weather service told. You know, so they didn't have to actually know anything except how to read the science things that the National Weather Service said and put it into lay language. Sure. Uh, they didn't have to actually have personal knowledge of how to forecast the weather. Now, in 1981, Nash retired. At that time, he was 63 years old. 
Okay, so that sensible thing. But he didn't completely go away. Uh, they kept him on retainer. And whenever there was an active storm, they would bring him back, prop him up against his whiteboard with his grease pencil, and he would give you his story about what he thought the storm was going to do. And then they would cut to the regular weather guy to talk about the other weather stuff. Nash was the hurricane guy. And everybody would switch stations to see, to find out what Nash thought. If you lived in New Orleans or even anywhere on the Gulf Coast in the 1970s or 80s or 90s, this was a thing. You know, nothing else meant. You know, when you talk about hurricanes, you want to know what Nash thought was going to happen. Yeah. Uh, and his final triumph, well, semifinal triumph, let me say, was in 1998 with Hurricane George. This was a very powerful storm. And as far as anyone could tell, it was making a beeline for New Orleans. Now, when George was about 300 miles out, Nash stood in front of his whiteboard with a grease pencil and said, I think the storm is going to hit Biloxi. Now, this was about two days before it made landfall. And as the storm progressed, Every six hours or so, Nash would show back up on his little vignette and go, you know, I, I, I really know. I think the storm is going to hit Biloxi. Meanwhile, it's going, it's like you put a ruler on its track. And it's like straight line. New Orleans, yeah. straight line. Okay. And all right. I went to bed in Tunica, Mississippi, because I followed everyone's advice. The National Weather Service and everyone else and their dog and God himself was saying, if you're in New Orleans, get the fuck out because this is going to hit New Orleans. No one except Nash Roberts thinks it's going to do anything except hit New Orleans. So uh, I did what anyone does when they are in a hotel 200 miles away wondering if they're going to have a home to go back to and got roaring drunk. And you know, so I'm sitting there drinking my hand going, okay. Nash is still saying, this is going to hit Biloxi. Yeah. All right. It's, it's, going, to bed. it's going to bed when the Falcons are leading the Patriots 28 to 3. Yeah. And going, <laughs> it was and going it's so, Tom Brady's the GOAT, but it's over. <laughs> so when I got up the next morning, it turned out that the storm had made landfall. In Venice, Louisiana, at the tip, at the mouth of the Mississippi River, then made a ninety-degree turn. Look at hurricane tracks sometime and see how often that happens. Uh, it doesn't happen very often, and it hit Biloxi. Now, <laughs> I will get back to this in a second. All right. Uh, after that, uh, that was his, his next to last hurrah. It was his last. You know, in 2001, he completely retired from public life. Uh, his wife was uh, doing poorly. You know, they were both very old. Okay, He was born in 1918. I'm not quite sure how old Lydia was. But uh, he said, I have to take care of my wife. Yeah. Uh, I can't do this anymore going in when storms are barreling in on us. But the neighbors... Uh, took up a habit of keeping an eye on his driveway. 
because they always knew he had never evacuated Groundhog. for a hurricane. Groundhog. Not Groundhog. once. Not once since he came home after World War II had he ever left town for a hurricane. Uh, but everybody kept an eye on the driveway because they knew that if Lydia's car ever disappeared, it would mean that Nash had left town, that he had actually, you know, all right, you know, he didn't make an announcement or anything. Then uh, two days before Katrina hit, the neighbors saw that his driveway was empty. <laughs> it's like, it's Word. like, it's like calling Dale <laughs> and Dale being like, yeah, I'm counting my ammo. I'd be like, oh, this isn't just a normal, this isn't a normal, you know, this isn't a normal Proud Boys v. BLM. If Dale's like, yeah, I'm in a bunker, that's why I'd call Roger. I'm like, Roger, get in a bunker. Dale's taking cover. That was, right? Word, word spread like wildfire. <laughs> Nash had evacuated. And thousands, I, I, I believe thousands of people left in New Orleans who would never would have considered leaving New Orleans. Yeah. Because they heard that Nash Roberts had left. And if Nash had left, it was going to be bad. It's like Elon because buying into Bitcoin. Other people do it, right? Yeah, well, yeah. Nash bought into get the fuck out. <laughs> so, uh, and of course, we all know what Katrina ended up doing. Jeez. And I was convinced for years that it was impossible that the death toll for Katrina could have been less than 10,000. I thought that was clearly some kind of whitewash or something. And as the, as the numbers clarified over the years, it became uh, established that, no, it had actually been that low. And part of it was that a lot of people who had never left, who had never felt the need to leave, had left. And I think a lot of that was because word had spread that Nash Roberts had bled town. Yeah. And a lot of these people who almost worshipped him, he would literally, there were people who called him the weather god. Yeah. And it was like, if Nash Roberts left town, then we gotta leave. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and, and because a lot of the people who died in Katrina are people who had never seen street flooding before. Yeah. When the levees failed, it caused flooding on a scale and in places that had never seen flooding at all. Uh, you had a lot of older people who, uh, you know, died uh, in their houses because they simply had never experienced any reason. But the ones who saw that Nash left and went, it's that bad. Okay. Uh, they survived. They gave the storm their respect. Yeah. You know, and that's the one, that's the only thing you can do with a hurricane is respect the fuck out of it and get out of its way if, if there's any chance that it's coming for you. Yeah. So after that, uh, Nash came out of retirement for a couple of interviews. You know, that's, uh, but, you know, it, you're talking about, you know, man who's, you know, in his late 80s at this point. He was 80 years old when the George fiasco thing happened. Uh, and in 2007, his wife died. And in 2010, he followed the age of 92. Uh, he remains to this day one of the most beloved public figures ever to emerge from this part of the country. And that is saying a lot when you consider that we have people like Harry Connick Jr., uh, several politicians of uh, some of ill repute who would get reelected today uh, if they were able to run. Who's Edwin Edwards? Um, I'm, yeah. I'm embarrassed. I, I don't, I don't know him. Who? 
the guy you just Harry Con- Edwin Edwin. Harry Connick Jr. Or oh, Edwin no, no, Edwin. I've heard that name. The, not the other one. You said a politician. Which, which, you said a politician who would rerun. Ed- Edwin Edwards? Yeah. Three-term governor of Louisiana. Crooked as root branch. I'm Very not- colorful person. Uh, okay. Went to jail for 10 years uh, after his third trial, having beaten the rap twice. But uh, also a guy who knew how to run the state. Yeah, he, he was crooked. He took his cut. But he was one of these guys who knew that if the state wasn't run correctly, there wouldn't be a cut for him to take. So he was very good about making sure things ran right. and that every, everyone was taken care of. And I'll be honest, I'm one of the people who would vote for him myself if he could run again. But his, hey, he, 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 hey, man, Bill, <laughs> hey, man, Bill Clinton balanced the budget. You know, exactly. I've, and uh, I've, I've, you got to remember too, this, this is the state that gave us Huey Long. It's <laughs> who, uh, you know, uh, so, so for Nash Roberts to be, uh, as regarded as he is by the people of this area is a massive thing. You know, that's like, it's not like we have a shortage of people that are beloved, uh, almost at a religious level yeah. by the people. And a lot of that, you know, goes down to that skill that he seemed to have that he picked up, you know, learning. The, it's, it's like like certain people who started programming in machine language back when that was the only way to do it. And, you know, uh, those skills come out, you know, they, they, they make you sharper about other things, mm-hmm. even when you have more powerful tools. Okay. That is the conventional reading of Nash Roberts's career. Now, let us go back to the non-conventional reading of Nash Roberts's career. I vividly remember that night in 1998 when I was in Tunica watching Nash Roberts on the TV, wondering if I would have a home to come back to. And One of the things that I will remember if I live to be a thousand years old is Nash Roberts saying, being agitated. Because Nash Roberts didn't get agitated. Nash didn't do agitated. But he was agitated. He was going, I I don't understand this storm. This storm is supposed to hit Biloxi. Now, that is not the kind of thing you say if you're questioning why you're predictive things are not aligning with what's happening. If you think about it, if he saw something in the steering currents 300 miles out that he thought was going to nudge the storm toward Biloxi, but it didn't show up, there's no reason that that same force would nudge the storm to Biloxi when it's 60 miles from New yeah, Orleans. It, does, it, doesn't, it doesn't pan out that, the same. That doesn't make any sense. It's not the same force. The force that takes it to nudge is not equivalent to the force it takes to 90 degree turn it. Right. Right. Yeah. Now, now this is, this is a man who has been doing this for at the times like 60 years and in public for 50. And, and I'm looking at this half, you know, well, more than half drunk going, this isn't a guy who's acting like, for you. he's he's telling the storm what to do well to, and it's not to, doing to, it to backtrack it's, what you what you pointed <laughs> out is 
uh, <laughs> he was very open to saying I'm wrong. Right. So, yes. so this is not what I'm gathering from you is this isn't really fitting him. He's normally right. Oh you no. Know, you make it sound like this is a guy that would go, well, I thought I was going to hit Biloxi, but I'm wrong. But here he is sort of like putting no, his will upset. out into the this universe. This storm is supposed to hit Biloxi. We had an agreement. We had an agreement. I am the storm God. <laughs> this is, yeah. And, and I'm, I'm saying he's doing this on, on air live in front of God and everybody. And no one actually picked it up. But I'm, I'm saying it because I had the background with the woo stuff and yeah, all. Yeah, I'm going, yeah. I wonder, it's like the cast, hurricane whispered. He's putting his intent the, out there. Yeah, the hurricane whisper. Does the whispers go both ways? Oh. Now, look back between 1965 and 2005, 40 years, zero powerful storms hit New Orleans. Zero. There were a couple of glancing blows and a couple of tropical storms that weren't all that bad, but there was no area-wide devastation. Between 1969, after Camille, and 2005, there were only a couple of powerful storms to hit the entire northern Gulf Coast. One of those was Andrew, which hit Miami, blasted the fuck out of Southern California, then came up and hit Gulfport, dumped a bunch of rain there. I think it may have killed one person in Mississippi. Southern so Cal- it, California? No. You said Southern California. Miami. Yeah, but you said Southern California. The the Southern, the... Well, that was a brain fart if I did. I was about to say, wait, hold on. Uh, no, Andrew came through, hit, uh, hit Southern Florida. Maybe I if you just slurred typo, that. Typo, yeah, whatever. Yeah, okay. it hit Miami, crossed the tip of Florida, came back into the Gulf, sure. swung back up, hit Gulfport. Uh, but it only killed like maybe one person, dumped a bunch of rain, it, but it wasn't like the kind of devastating thing that Camille was. Uh, and of course, George hit Biloxi, but it had weakened itself a bit in its interaction with Southern Louisiana before it made the right turn. So it wasn't super devastating. And of course, all these storms managed to hit lightly populated areas compared to New Orleans, for example. Now, in 2005, well, in 1998, if we run with the idea that Nash was whispering to the hurricanes as much as he was hearing them whisper to him. Uh, he and George had a lover's spat of some kind. And it was like only at the last moment that it agreed to spare his home and went and hit Biloxi like he had told it to. But, you know, this is a, a, a recurring theme in mythology that the human wizard can be very powerful, but humans are still mortal Hmm. and the gods are not. So uh, it may have been that encounter with George that let Nash know that whatever it was that he may or may not have ever had was uh, not operative anymore. Or, 
and or that it, that it that he's not a god that you hey you've got some power but it's for a time and, and well and the thing is and Nash never acted like a person who thought he was god that and again yeah that's yeah, what was, you pointed out earlier yeah yeah he was always very humble and uh and, you know he was very professional about things yeah uh which is what was so startling about that thing in 1998 because he was losing it on air yeah. Uh, and I had never seen that before. I've been watching this man my entire life. Uh, and I had never seen him do anything like that before. Uh, then in 2005, he's completely bowed out of public life. And what happens is, okay, he sees Katrina coming. And he can probably still hear it whispering. Yeah. But he knows it's not listening to him anymore. Yeah. And so... He does what he's always told everyone else to do and starts back in the car. Yeah. Now, that is my alternate telling of Nash Roberts's career is that he protected New Orleans in particular and Gulf Coast in general for 40 years. He somehow had some power over these storms. And I can tell you... I can tell you that if you, in, you know, were to approach any person from New Orleans of a certain generation and suggest this to them, they would say, oh, yeah, fuck yeah, yeah. yeah, oh, def- go, yeah. definitely. Yeah, yeah, 100%, yeah. Yeah, no, it, yeah, he's fucking protecting it, right? It's, yeah, I mean, so, yeah. I mean, 40 years. For, you know, we have a major city located in the middle of fucking bullseye town for major hurricanes and didn't even get so much as a strong tropical storm for 40 years. Now, since 2005, of course, Nash died in 2010. So, you know, but whatever is, he knew it was up in 2005. Uh, The next storm that really fucked things up over a large area was Ida a couple of months ago, uh, which didn't kill a lot of people, fortunately, but it fucked the hell up out of our infrastructure. (laughs) And the whole city was down for a month. It was, you know, it was nuts. So Nash, Nash was like this Gandalf type figure, like defending the city at the gates and who knows? Maybe the deal was he got fame, and in turn he would—I don't know—he somehow was appeasing the gods. And yeah, I, I don't think he got. Yeah, I, I don't think his part of the bargain was fame because yeah. he didn't have, ever act like a person who cared that much about it. It was more that this was his home, and he was protect. You know, it's like he wanted his home to be protected. Maybe because uh, he showed them respect that. That's that's kind of the way that I look at it is that he understood the storm. He went to the trouble to 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 learn what made the storm tick, you know, as it were. And no one else has done that since, you know, probably no one ever will. Now, if we are running with this idea, then the uh, the vein of magic that probably got tapped there would have been based in voodoo because this is new Orleans. And I've known some people in that, you know, from the woo. Highline, uh, 
And to become a voodoo priest or priestess, uh, there are basically, you know, there, there are two really, uh, the two most common things that happen. Uh, the most common probably, especially for uh, priestesses, is you marry the god. So there are a bunch of elaborate rituals and there is actually a wedding. And you marry the god. And in most cases, this also means that you are then celibate in yeah. natural life because you're married. Right. Uh, I found that, uh, you know, it is actually very grueling and an intense commitment to become a voodoo priest or priestess. They take this shit very seriously. Um, the other thing that you can do is offer your body for the God, you know, to voluntarily agree to be possessed, to offer yourself as as, as the Vodans put it, as a horse for the god to ride. So you volunteer your body for the god to possess you. And so it can have an incarnate identity in the natural world for a few hours. And in return, it will do things for you uh, through its supernatural abilities. Uh, and if you look at it that way, then this intimate knowledge that Nash had uh, studying the storms as into, you know, as intimately and as thoroughly as he did may have formed a relationship like that. Probably not quite like either of those scenarios, but, uh, having studied a fair number of magic traditions, I can see where, uh, okay, maybe, you know, it was a similar thing because the other thing about all of these, uh, syncretic naturalistic religions is that if you think of a God and envision it, then it can become real. Mm -hmm. You make it real. Mm -hmm. And the degree to which it becomes real and powerful is related to the effort that you put into that. And nobody put more effort into understanding hurricanes than Nash Roberts. So uh, yeah, the other people, yeah, from his unit in the Philippines and his, you know, the, those guys, they scattered about. Most of them didn't end up here where hurricanes actually hit you every once in a while. So I find it very plausible when I am in woo believing mode or accepting mode that Nash was the hurricane whisperer. Yeah. He didn't just predict the hurricanes. He protected us from them for his entire life. Uh, and as I said, that, that is the thing. If you were to go to a New Orleans old timer who remembered Betsy and Camille and say, what do you think? Do you think Nash like had some kind of power over there that, that he was protecting us? A lot of them would go, oh yeah. Yeah. That was when, you know, when he fled town, people, that was, that was like, that was like Gandalf fleeing the field of battle. I you know, you've lost. It's lost. It's done. <laughs> I imagine like, I imagine like Eisenhower, like a similar figure, like, right. Supreme allied commander, five-star general, largest amphibious invasion in the history of man comes back, builds the nuclear bunker network. I imagine him as this sort of like the umbrella under which like no nukes shall fall. Like some sort of 
he's like tamed. Oh yeah, you know something was operative there because it was so crazy for twenty years or so. And then, kind of like Nash, though, towards the end, it almost seems like he acknowledged that he wasn't taming the beast anymore because he leaves him fleeing. Nash fleeing is the same as Eisenhower on his third to last day in office giving the military industrial complex speech. Mm-hmm. Sort of this like, watch these guys. He had watch bi- these guys. He had they're bi- gonna fuck you over. <laughs> he had built this machine to protect, and he's like, and but now he realized like his time was up, and he was like, hey. This that dragon. was like the golem, and it's like, uh, oh, yeah. uh, oh, shit. Yeah, he's like, this, <laughs> this dragon has protected us against the Nazis and the Japanese and the communists. And he's like, but now now it's feeding on us. And that's he kind of leaves with that note, right? The next guy comes in, tries to tame it, gets his head blown off, and it was like, you know. Yep. May, I mean, who knows, man? Like, who, who? why wouldn't that maybe be something, right? I mean, like Andrew Jackson fighting against the banks and then – the assassin, both pistols misfire. Like, there are some weird <laughs> things, right? There are some odd things about it. Like, well, one or two, yeah. But, uh, so, so anyway, but uh, you know, I was astonished when you told me that you had never heard of Nash Roberts because down here, everyone has heard of Nash Roberts. Had literally, even people who have never seen him, people people who are too young to have ever seen him on the TV, have heard of of Nash Roberts because they're their parents and grandparents have told him, oh, yeah, when Nash Roberts said the hurricane is coming, you got out of Dodge. That was uh, – but he didn't have to do that for a lot of years, and yeah. that was itself a funny thing. It is – you almost wonder if when you get to these levels, if there is some sort of, like, group intent or everyone watches them. I mean, like, I always like to think, like, how much do you think, like, intent affects, like, sporting events? when you're watching Tom Brady and they're down 28 to three, but everyone's like, it's Tom Brady. You almost wonder if there's some sort of, you know, black magic ritual going on. It doesn't have to be. Obviously a lot of people obviously think so. I mean, that's right. I mean, it's like the old thing, right? Sold the soul to the devil for fame. But like when you see like Elvis Presley, just like wooing a nation, you almost (laughs) wonder, is there some like forces behind that? Right. Or like Curtis LeMay. Right, he would step onto flight lines of B fifty twos, and there'd be jet fuel all over the floors, and he'd be smoking a cigar. And they'd say, "Like, sir, like, if you know, if if one ember falls, all these planes are going to catch fire." And apparently, he took it out, like looked up and down the flight line, and said, "They wouldn't dare." So, like, right, you almost got it, but it's like they're forged in these mythical because he was he used to be the front plane Mm -hmm. on these bombing raids and over Japan, he would fly front. Right? It's like yep. Washington running into battle with his guy. You almost create these mythical creatures. Yeah, well, and, and of course, Nash was one of the first people to deliberately fly into a tropical system to study was it. That the, was that the sacrifice? Did he, did he swim down and uh, you know grab the fucking Excalibur out of the stone, right? Was that yeah. his, his I'm worthy? Yeah. Well, I mean, he wasn't the only one in the in the plane and he wasn't the only one in what would become the hurricane hunters but it, I, I, you know you could say it was a combination of that and his intense study and the intense attention that he paid to it uh which he proved with his prediction of hurricane audrey yeah back when there was hardly any data to go on and it was like he heard the hurricane whispering yeah okay but then at some point he was whispering back and do you think they, like, they don't, do you think they did him a solid? He got 
he got one. Yeah. It was like, uh, you know, but he, you know, he paid the respect and that's, you know, as with Chris Columbus and his treasure ship, you know, it's like, yeah. okay. Yeah. You paid You, you, you paid the respect. Okay. Yeah. yeah. There's for everyone listening. The episode, we don't have to, yeah, we don't have to kill you. <laughs> yeah. For everyone listening, the episode we did is episode 201 about woo and about all of this. It's like a three hour episode of us talking about this stuff, but with no video. Oh yeah, I had video. You didn't, yeah. So it's just a video of me. It's a video of me listening to Roger. But because I still had the crappy tablet before I got this computer, oh, I yeah. found out that that the uh, the tablet was no longer uh, doing what it was supposed to do. Um, so yeah, it, it been, yeah because I, I actually uh, listened to parts of it the other day to oh, yeah? refresh my oh, own okay. recollection. But, uh, and, and, and every time I go back to that, it's like, I remember this episode and then I was like, oh crap, this is the one where I would have video because it wasn't doesn't working. Matter. It's me in like a black, it's me on the laptop with an echoey room. It's all, it was all, it was all <laughs> early, early TPC, but it, it makes you think if there is, I mean, you, you know me and I'm very open about it. I like, I do think there's something to like woo or supernatural. Is it God? I don't know. Is it un, is it an undiscovered field of science? I don't know. But there just seems to be so many cases throughout humanity where there are these things where it's just like, I don't know. It almost seems like there's some there's something else in the universe that's just kind of giving you like a wink. Yeah. Well, and uh, and I am I am partial to the interpretation that the late Robert Anton Wilson put on it, which <laughs> is uh, that it is a mistake to believe anything. Uh, because sure. belief beliefs imprison you. Yeah, they he, put he, you in a box. He, he said. Yeah, his his phrase for it was convictions create convicts. Uh, if you if you believe in something, you close your all, yourself off to the possibility that you're wrong. Of, of other, yeah. If if we know and, this uh, happened, then yeah, yeah. So is you know everything that happens, and, and it was one of the things I kept coming back to in the Wu episode is that everything that happens in the Wu like sphere can be explained as a natural phenomenon. Yeah. It has, you know, this this seems to be a characteristic of Wu is that it has to, but it can be damned improbable. Yeah, it's all, it's nothing like a like a bar of gold just appearing in the right right in front of me and falling on my lap. Like there's no yeah, wizards. Yeah, you know, it's not wizards standing on top of a mountain throwing lightning bolts. Yeah, there's it's, nothing like that. It's all it's all proof. It's all right. It's yeah, it's, it's me it's, getting. It's more that you know, you're you know, some random thing happens that just changes everything that no one saw coming and it's perfectly positioned and completely plausible of course rocks fall from this thing all the time one of them just happened to hit your bitterest enemy on the head yeah. oh darn you know yeah. uh but you know it's it's not like uh you know clark kent came out of nowhere and clobbered him it, it's it's just the natural world's Pulled a weird on us. Okay, it does that every once in a while. And if you've hung around casinos as much as I have, you see things that are this weird. I have had there have been four occasions that I remember when I have seen a roulette wheel where the entire scoreboard, the last twenty rolls, was all in one color. Now that is so improbable. That is yeah. like you know one part and two to the twentieth power. Okay. But on the other hand, if you hang around in casinos long enough, then 
things that improbable are going to happen. Yeah. I had a guy walk up on me one time when I was playing roulette and decided to do, he decided to do a martingale started with 25 cents, kept doubling his bet when he, as he lost by the time he got up to $10, everyone started betting against him and he kept it up until he pulled all the money out of his wallet, made a bet that wouldn't have possibly, you know, that wouldn't have covered his last bet, even if he had won it, lost that one. And then on the next roll, his color came up. Yeah. I remember now that's, you know, and that really happened. That is a thing that I actually was physically there for and saw happen to a real person. Okay. So that you, you have to run. It's like, the, the, the world really does do things like this. I, like, I remember sitting at a roulette wheel with my brother John in like December, maybe 2012, 2013, maybe 2012. And we were just playing because it was like a casino where everything was electronic. And the only thing that wasn't was the roulette wheel. It was some, it's some, it, it's changed since then. There was some law in Maryland that like it, it, you couldn't have human dealers and blah, blah. so it was all electronic, which to me was just it's a no go. If it's electronic, then I'm not doing that. We we only yeah, played roulette because it was the only physical thing where there was an actual like right. So we played that, and I remember yeah. we were just kind of playing for like a couple hours, just drinking. And I'll never forget this like dude walked up who looked like some homeless wizard, and he like, came up, sat down. What it's it's all what is it? It's black and 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 green or red and black. Black and red and, and uh, two and the one or two house numbers that are green, depending upon uh, whether it's a European or a U.S. roulette wheel. Yeah, so it's either one or two of those, whatever. And I remember this dude came up, like he sat down, put like twenty five dollars on green, one roll, yeah. got it. I think with the house, walked away with everything, like nothing happened. And I'll never fr- <laughs> came sat sat down one bet hit green yeah hadn't happened in the two hours I was sitting there picked it up without so much as a cheer cashed out and then just w- went on his merry way and it was like yeah. was that a was that a wizard like what was that <laughs> like what the f- but seriously what the fuck was that like I don't know man it it just gets it gets yeah. odd and the thing is when you when you bet green on a roulette wheel you are betting against everybody else yeah. Because if you're betting on red or black, green is not red or black. Basically, that that is the house number. Unless you are specifically betting on the house number itself, all the other bets on the table are wiped out when the house number hits. So, yeah, that was, uh, yeah, that may as a roulette wheel whisper, maybe. Just... Yeah, it's just some some wizard where it's like he ha- he's like incarnated on Earth and he has to find a way to like make money, but he can't. Again, he can't like break the rules and just synthesize cash out of nothing. So he had to like go to the casino and technically, you know, gamble. Yeah. But it's like that's the only way he could maintain his cover. Money laundering for supernatural. Yeah, entities. a money laundering wizard. It's like no, he's like he's not allowed to synthesize. He's not allowed to make gold or something. So he's like so like once a month he has to go to the casino or something and just kind of make like a withdrawal, like right. I mean, yeah, yeah, money laundering. That's the only way he'd be able to get away with it. But it does make you think about that stuff. Like, is there something? And then is it? And then what is it? I mean, is it the gods trying? Do they have their own agenda? And are you just, do you guys have mutual interests? 
Is it a god looking down on you, smiling, and they're like, fuck it, give him a little help? Or is it indifferent? Is it, it could be black magic or it could just be normal magic and it's evil or good, but it's just what are you putting in and what do you want to get out? Like it might just be, it might just be uh, an exchange, right? It might just be transactional. I don't well, know. yeah, we we had a we already had a fairly long discussion of this in yeah, the, yeah. the Wu episode, yeah. uh, and and yeah, it's uh, the you know, the thing is, you look at something like Nash Roberts's career, and you go you know, if you take the Wu based interpretation and ask what he got about uh, out of it, he protected his home. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's not a complicated thing. You don't need yeah. anything more than that. Yeah. Uh, but you also also sense the weakness there from the other side. You know, as if the force is remotely hostile. That's all he wants. Okay. And you don't want to be controlled by this. Yeah. One point. What do you threaten? Yeah. Okay. So, and this is a thing. If you study magic uh, by any of the, well, conventional is not probably the right word, but uh, there there are various disciplines that are right now. All of them warn you about negative magic. Yeah. And, you know, because the, the basis for all of it is that you start with a thought form. And the basic theorem of magic is that a thought is an object. It's a thing that exists. Same as a brick or or a block of wood. And it can, you know, just like a brick or a block of wood by the fact that it exists can have uh, an effect on the universe around it. So can a thought form. And uh, Nash created a hell of a powerful set of thought forms centered around hurricanes. You know, that was his lifelong obsession. And that is like a a recipe for how to create a powerful thought form that might establish a reality of its own if you are uh, working within a magical system. Uh, Then there are ways of using and manipulating these thought forms. But one of the things they warn you is that if you create a negative thought form, you know, it's like if you want to destroy your enemy and your thought form is a lightning bolt that will strike your enemy dead, uh, the closest thing in the universe to that thought form when you create it is you. Yeah. So you have to be really careful yeah. Not to end up getting hit by your own lightning bolt. Yeah. Uh, and this is why they warn anyone who is playing with this stuff, don't fuck with it. It's like it's releasing like <laughs> a biological weapon. Like imagine if you had mm-hmm. to, it's like if you personally had to release it out of the out of the test tube. You're holding it. Yeah. Like you're oh, right, yeah. yeah, right. Well, it's like the you know, the scene toward the end of Twelve Monkeys where the uh, the guy who's who's planning to release the virus uh, gets uh, stopped in the airport and asks, "Well, what's in this thing?" It's like, "Oh, there's there's nothing in here." It's like, "Well, open it and show me." And you just see like this almost ecstatic glint in his eye, 
open it. Okay. See, there's no smell. Okay. Like, it's completely inert, as he knows that this is something that will kill most of the human race. And uh, so, he, but he knows. This is, this is the moment of truth, right? Then he gets on the airplane and spreads it around the world. And uh, that's how the, the story actually begins in chronological order. Um, but yeah, it's like that's what you're setting yourself up for if you try to do dark magic. Uh, and what Nash was trying to do is control really fucking powerful forces. Yeah. Now, and it wasn't vanity. He, it wasn't money no. and fame. It was protecting his home. Yeah. And, and he gave them the respect, but he was also mortal. Mm -hmm. And there are multiple stories in mythology about how that works out. You, you know, you, you tame the terrible horse, protect your home, but you're mortal. And one day you die. And uh, if you're unlucky, you live, as Nash did, to see everything go to hell in handbasket. Because he lived to see Katrina and its aftermath. This is like the classic end of that story. Live long enough. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, so you got to. Uh, yeah, I think it's got, just got me thinking about that lightning analogy, right? You release it. You're right there. It's going to ground itself in you. And that's the risk you take with like the dark magic. Well, then there's also this like this kind of beautiful flip side to like light magic. You might be trying to yes. release this thing because you're like, I just want the world to be a better place. You know, I want I want so and so to find peace. Maybe we can get health care for everyone and maybe we can stop fighting and maybe we can stop wishing hate on each other. And you release this this magical lightning bolt of love and you're doing it selflessly. It might also say it taps you and you're like, I don't even want this. And they're like, I know, but you're a good guy. <laughs> so, right. You, you wanted to win the lottery to give it to yeah. someone else. And they're like, well, here, here's a million. Yeah. And, and that's the, uh, that, that is a thing that you also, you know, is it's like, you know, well, the, the blowback from doing white magic and getting it a little off and having a blowback on you is a little better than the blowback from yeah. doing dark magic and having a blowback on you. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's world war one. <laughs> it's releasing the mustard gas and it blowing back at you versus like, mm -hmm if I was like releasing laughing gas on you and the wind actually brought it back to me, like, Oh no, now I'm just laughing. You know, it's, it's not a bad thing. Roger, I got to pee again. I'm going to, I got to, I'm going to check my phone. Let me see if uh, I'm what my time is with Mitzi and we'll see how long we can keep going. I think it's probably about five fifty at your, uh, on your end. Roger, I got to pee anyway. So monologue. Don't you hate it when that happens? Monologue, Roger. Uh, all right. Well, I already told you where to find my book. Uh, any, anyway, uh, for those of you from the New Orleans area, uh, I'm not uh, disparaging Nash in any way. I'm uh, offering a, an interpretation that, to me, became unavoidable after 1998 when I was in that hotel room and 
heard him losing his shit for the first time I had ever heard Ash Roberts losing his shit. It was an unheard of thing. And this is uh, honestly the only explanation that I can think of that makes any sense to me. Uh, So, and uh, as you might know, if you haven't uh, heard it, uh, previous episodes where we talked about woo and some of the other topics, uh, I explained myself as far as I don't believe in these things. I don't disbelieve in them either, though. Uh, I keep an open mind on the advice of Robert Ann Wilson, who said beliefs imprison you. Um, I am very much on team science most of the time. I am... I have both vaccination shots and ready to get my booster when those become available. When are you getting because your booster? Because I am uh, I, only barely uh, eligible for it time-wise. It's not an urgent thing at the moment. Basically, when it becomes available to me, I will be in line to get it. Because you, um, you got your – I'm waiting to hear back from from Mitzi. Um, as of now, we can keep yeah. chatting. Because um, you got yours very early, right? You were able to. Yeah, well, mine was not very early, but about a month earlier than most people my age did. I I, I got a little bit of a head start because I have uh, comorbidity. So I had my second shot on April 2nd. You got your first Um, sometime in March, right? March 2nd. Yeah, March 4th, I think. Yeah, so it was, yeah. uh, And and that was like just uh, days after uh, we entered phase three. The age cutoff was supposed to be 65, but they offered exceptions if you had comorbidities. And as my wife said, you have coronary artery disease. Like I won the fucking lottery. You're like, oh. It's like, yeah. So, so I signed up and got my shot. Then uh, at the time, they were doing four weeks for Moderna. So it was in early April I got my second shot. So it's only barely been six months. And that's the interval that they're recommending. Uh, there's a lot of people, though, who uh, who were sicker uh, or older who got their shots earlier than that. And they're they're the ones who are like uh, head of the line. Yeah. You know, right. You know, uh, I'm not I'm not super concerned uh, so far with it, but I will definitely get in line and take my place to get the booster when it is clear that it's available because right now it's not even clear that it's available yeah it's it's, it's been recommended and all, but uh i haven't seen any sign like saying okay it's available you know call these places and get in line uh, i'm sure eventually i'll be able to go to steel and get in line like i did for the first one and yeah. well i mean yeah you know, that'll as i've told you i have i have extended family members your age with comorbidities and yeah i was fucking happy they could I mean, I know I sit on here with like Dr. Malone and I'm more of a kind of the freedom based shit. I'm just like, don't tell me what to do. <laughs> I just got my I just got a tetanus booster last week because it had been forever since I had one. Um, but no, it, it's it's even as Dr. Malone said, the very reason I got suspended, Dr. Malone. Well, one of the reasons him saying that not all young men should get it in the same episode. He also talks about how people with comorbidities should get it. And that's kind of. The thing about Malone is everyone's is he pro or anti? And it's like, dude, he has he's very clear on like why some people should get it and why some shouldn't. Like I said, so extended yeah. family members that have it, I'm happy they got it. Now, I, the, if they the got, sorry, is, I think, if they had yeah, COVID, the if, th- we have a delay. If my extended family members <laughs> got COVID, if they'd be dead. 
And so I'm I'm very happy that we got that. Well, it's it it's it's actually more complicated than that. You know, the the problem is that the Delta variant is hitting younger people, people mm-hmm. who didn't seem to get hit by the original version as much. Yeah. And uh, it comes back to you have to look at how COVID kills you. Uh, yeah. The yeah. COVID does not kill you the same way that the flu does. Yeah. And uh, the flu kills you by taking over so many of your cells, turn them into flu virus factories that there aren't enough of them left to perform the duties of keeping your body alive. Yeah. Uh, the COVID kills you by driving your own immune system apeshit and it kills you. And, and, and micro clotting at the capillary and alcohol. Clotting, cytokine storm. It's not that, yeah, it's not that COVID. And this is one of the reasons it kills you faster than the flu does because it's not, having to multiply to the degree that flu does in order to fuck up enough parts of your body to do that. It's making your own body turn against you. Mm-hmm. Now people want us like, well, I'm worried if I had get the vaccine, I might have a reaction. This is the thing. If you get the vaccine, you will have the spike protein in your blood for a few hours. If you have a reaction to that, what then the what fuck do you think is going to happen if you actually get the disease and it's in your blood for two weeks, yeah, that is the very sign that you needed the damn vaccine. Yeah. Uh, now I had no problem. I, I was like, my arm turned a little red for a few hours. Sure. That was it. One of my coworkers had a fever for a day and a half. Yeah. Uh, he needed the vaccine. I may or may not have actually, in fact, I actually pretty sure I had COVID back in the early days, but, it was before you could get a test yeah. and the symptoms were non-standard. You know, at the time it wasn't known that joint pain yeah. was one of the symptoms, but at, you know, it's like Nash looking over these things and the, it's like, Oh, this happened. It's like, Oh, that's what happened. In, yeah. You know, three months ago and these ship logs things, you know? Uh, so, you know, I'm probably not one of the people who super needs the vaccine, but I'm damn well going to get it. But you're, you're also someone that it's better safe than sorry, right? I mean, how, how, old, are, how yeah. old are you, Roger? Well, you, the thing is, you got these people who think because I'm, I have a strong immune system, then I don't need it. You don't understand. It's because you have a strong immune system that That's you're more likely gonna, to yeah. die if it fucks with you. Yeah. You know, it, it's, you know it, it's not as simple as I'm, I'm young and healthy. Uh, there is a subreddit called Herman, Herman Cain Award. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, it is full of people who thought they don't need the vaccine. They don't, you know, that, and, you know, the, the progression is maddeningly consistent mm-hmm. from case to case that, uh, you know, they shit talk the virus, they should talk the vaccine, they should talk masking and distancing, and then they end up in the hospital, which is your nomination, and then they get their award, which means they die, and then the GoFundMe goes up. Yeah. And it is maddeningly consistent. Yeah. And, you know, and, you know uh, every once in a while, one of them survives and goes, I sure get the guess. vaccine. Yeah. yeah. Get the vaccine. Yeah. Right. Our, our, before they die, they're like, I'm so sorry I didn't get the vaccine. I mean, yeah. it's like, yeah, the vaccine doesn't help you once you get the disease and once you are having the cytokine storm 
then it's too late. The vaccine can't help you then. But before that, it's free. Yeah. You know, you can spend thousands of dollars for one of these other treatments, or you can get the free vaccine and reduce your chances of dying by a factor of 90 to 99%. And then, and then you can have an asshole like me who, who got COVID and <laughs> didn't know he had COVID until I eventually got an antibody test. And they're like, oh, you had it. And I was like, no, I was really sick in August. And they're like, yeah, you had COVID. And I was like, well... You know, I, and everyone I worked with, we had all gotten sick, but all the nasal swabs came back because we didn't have it. And then eventually the oh, boss yeah. had us go get antibody tests. And then it turns out like two months later, we we're all like, we had COVID two months ago. Well, everybody was like, huh? Yeah. One girl was out. One girl younger than me was out of work for two months. Had horrible, horrible. And that, there's an example of someone in their 20s who got railroaded by it. Yeah. And, and the thing is, it's like. If someone gives you free tickets to a football game in a stadium of 50,000 people and they say, by the way, if you go to this game, you one thing you need to know is that uh, 5,000 of the people who go to this, thing, uh, to this game are going to end up uh, coming home by way of the hospital and uh, about 1,000 are, are, are going to die. We're going to line up against the wall and shoot them. But enjoy the game. Yeah. Are you going to that game? Well, who's playing? That's. <laughs> <laughs> well, is, is is it is it is it Patriots Falcons? You not you got to lay out the terms more evenly here, Roger. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, but but you yeah yeah, yeah. it's like that's you know that's if the... you if you put it like that then it starts to be people don't believe in things that are improbable. Sure. They think that a low probability is zero. I mean, I literally had a guy who got his first shot, but he was resentful about it. He's like, well, I saw the writing on the wall, and it's like places we go, it's eventually there's going to be a mandate. We're going to have one or more large customers that are going to require. So I knew I would have to get it, but it's still bullshit. And he goes on about all the reasons it's bullshit. And I'm like, uh, you do realize that it reduces your chance of dying COVID by, you know, by, you know, by like 95%. And he's like, but, but, and and he was like, but does it keep you from getting COVID? It's like, get him back to that. It's like, does it stop you from getting COVID? It's like, it makes it less likely. It makes you even less likely that you'll end up in the hospital and it makes you less likely than that, that you'll die. But But does it stop you from getting COVID? It's like, that's the only thing that matters. And if, if it's not perfect, it's worthless. Well, at a certain point, you have to, I guess, factor in natural selection. And I don't mean and to, I don't mean to make, guy, I don't mean, I don't know. Um, this is a guy who calibrates instrumentation for a living. He knows about error brackets and all this shit. He has this knowledge in his brain. But where COVID is concerned, it's like, oh, if it's not perfect, it's uh, it's worthless. Some people would think that Christopher Columbus knows a thing or two about transoceanic voyages, and if he's warning about a storm, <laughs> maybe you look out for him, and maybe you don't. Um, not to not to accelerate this one up, Roger. I got to run. I got Mitzi right now, and uh, okay, um, Roger Williams, Professor. I think we got it done. Yeah, Professor Williams. Until next time, we'll resume next week with the readings. And uh, I hate to skedaddle. I really got to run. That she's waiting to enter the room right now. So okay, <laughs> all right, Roger. Take care, buddy. See you next time. Peace. Recording stopped.